Good morning to all of you, and welcome to the worship of God in hearing from God from His Word. Let's bow our heads as we, as we come to His Word. Let's uh, bow our heads and our hearts so that we can listen and hear and understand and obey. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. You have not left us without instruction, without revelation, but You have revealed even Yourself to us. You have revealed Yourself to us in the person of Christ and in Your written Word. You have also revealed Yourself to us in nature. We thank You and praise You for this revelation. And now help us as we, as we come to this very specific revelation in Your Word from Romans chapter 1. Help us to, to have ears that hear and hearts and minds that understand, and then uh, feet and hands and minds that obey. May you use your servant, your humble servant here today, to make your word clear and plain. And may you write the truth of your word on each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two questions for you this morning. The first question is, are you righteous? Are you righteous? Now this is a yes or no question. Yes or no? Are you righteous? There is no waffling here. There is no gray area here. Which is it? You cannot, at the same time, be both light and dark. You cannot be evil and good. You cannot be righteous and unrighteous. You're either one or the other. Which one is it for you? And while you're thinking about that question... And while you're thinking about the right, the real answer to that question, I have a second question. The second question is, what is the distinguishing feature that marks you as either righteous or unrighteous? What is the distinguishing mark or feature in your life, in your person, that marks you as either righteous or unrighteous. If somebody was to examine your life, if, if somebody had the, the ability, the permission, to examine your life down to the most well-hidden secret, how would they know if you are righteous or unrighteous? Would it be by the clothes you wear? Is that how they would tell? Would it be by the way you talk? Would it be by the kind or color of car you drive? Or would it be by the places you do or do not visit in that car? Would it be by what you know or what you don't know? Is that how they would tell whether you were righteous or not? How would they know for sure 
You see, a righteous person and an unrighteous person can both do the same things. They can both wear the same kinds of clothes. They can both talk the same way. They can both drive the same kind and color of car. They can go, both go or not go to the same places. So none of these things, by themselves or in themselves, are a mark of righteousness or a distinguishing feature that marks you as righteous or unrighteous. But what is the distinguishing mark? The one thing that must be different between the righteous and the unrighteous. Now this morning we're going to attempt to answer that question. And I hope you've already turned with me to Romans chapter 1. Today we're going to begin another trip through the book of Romans. This past summer we took a flyover where we where we did an overview of the whole book of Romans in four sermons. And now we're going to come back and do a stroll or a jog or sometimes a walk and maybe even a crawl through the book of Romans. Now one of the big differences between a flyover and a walk through is that in a flyover, if you jump out of the airplane so that you can stop and smell the roses you will find out that you will soon be buried under the roses. But in a walkthrough, you can stop, and you can sniff the roses, and then you can keep walking, and you can stop at the next place. So there are advantages to doing a flyover. That is that you get the whole picture, or a large piece of it, at one time, and you don't get buried in the details. But then there's advantages to taking a walk where you have the leisure to stop if you see something that, that interests you. If you see something that deserves closer attention, you can stop and you can investigate and you can dig a little deeper and then you can continue to walk on to the next. So that's what we're going to attempt to do here in the next uh, number of months and possibly years. We're going to do a walkthrough. Now we're going to stop every now and then we're going to dig in a little deeper at a few spots, and we're going to take some detours from time to time in an effort to see how this great letter to the church at Rome connects with the rest of the Bible. So these sermons aren't going to all be from Romans, but we will stop and we will take some detours, and we will look to see how this connects with the rest of God's revealed truth in the Bible. You see, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans quotes the Old Testament over 50 times, depending on how you count them, as many as 75 times that he quotes the Old Testament. Matter of fact, more than 100 verses in the book of Romans are direct quotations from the Old Testament. So I think it would be helpful for us as we do this walkthrough to stop and, and look and see, okay, so what is the Apostle Paul saying by his use of these other scriptures? And what is the context for these quotations? And so in our text today, from Romans chapter 1, we come to the first such quotation at the end of verse 17. And this is the title for our sermon today, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. So let's begin by reading the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's the Old Testament. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if we would continue on in Romans chapter 1, we would find a distinct shift taking place in verse 18. And Lord willing, we will pick this back up in a few Sundays. <clears throat> but the contrast between the first half of Romans chapter 1 and the last half of Romans chapter 1 is the contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. The righteousness, it says in verse 17... The righteous live by faith. And in verse 18, the unrighteous are under the wrath of God. Two categories of people with two starkly different results. And there is no middle ground. There are no verses between verse 17 and verse 18. There is righteousness and there is unrighteousness. There are righteous who live by faith, and there are unrighteous who live under the condemnation and wrath of God. It is either one or the other. And if you are listening, if you're paying attention, you will find yourself here somewhere as well. All of us belong in one of these two categories. And as we look at these 17 verses... In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, there is one word 
that stands out above all the rest. It is found six times directly mentioned here in these 17 verses, and it is implied or suggested a number of other times. And this is the word faith. Faith is the distinguishing mark between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Faith is the difference. Faith is the distinguishing mark. Now we talk an awful lot about faith. We talk about it very casually at times. The Bible talks a lot about faith. The book of Romans in particular talks an awful lot about faith. But do we really know what we're talking about? Do we really know what this is? What this distinguishing mark really is? Do we know what it means? Well, today we want to begin to answer that question or those questions by addressing three more questions. Three questions about faith. First, what is faith? Faith is trusting in God rather than in ourselves. Second, what is the reason for faith? Or what is the basis for faith? The reason or basis for faith is that God is the only one who is right. And thirdly, what is the evidence of faith? Or what is a demonstration of faith? And the answer is the gospel, where God makes good on his promises and proves that he is right. Three things. What is faith? What is the reason for faith? What is the evidence or demonstration of faith? Now, for a bit of context uh, for these questions and for the answer that the book of Romans gives to us, we need to look at the reference the Apostle Paul made here in verse 17. And it's already been read for us from, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. That, that verse from the Old Testament is quoted three times in the New Testament. It is quoted here in Romans chapter 1. It is quoted in Galatians 3.11. It is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Let's turn back, back there to that verse. Habakkuk 2.4. Hopefully you can find it again. This is a little tiny book, one of the minor prophets, right before Zephaniah, right after Nahum. And let's look at the context for the Apostle Paul's quote, the righteous shall live by faith. Why did he choose to use this verse? What is he intending to convey to us about what faith is because of the quote from this Old Testament passage? What we see here as we look at what is going on in this passage, that the prophet is asking God a question or he's making a complaint to God. He's wondering why it seems that God is withholding his judgment. Why is he allowing evil to persist? Why is he allowing the evil people to go on being evil and being idolaters? And so he asks these questions of God and then he says, I will take my stand. I'm going to watch. I'm going to I'm going to see what God will say, what he will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answers, this is how it is. This is how it is. Write this down. Make sure you get this. Make it plain on tablets. 
so that even somebody who runs can read it. All right? Now, last night I was traveling, and there was a sign at a place of business, and I couldn't read it. This Whoever made the sign didn't do a very good job. I had to go turn around and go back and go real slow past it and almost stop so I could read the sign. That's not what it's talking about here. He's saying, make it so plain that people who are running past can see it. And here's what's supposed to be plain. Here's the message. The vision of God awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. This is the truth. If it seems slow, just wait. It will surely come. In its time, it will not delay. So God's going to do what God's going to do. If you don't think he's done it, just wait. He's not done yet. Behold, his soul, now he's talking about this evil person, whom it seems like he's not dealing with properly. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So what's being contrasted here is a person who is puffed up within himself. He's proud. He thinks he has it all together. He thinks he knows what he's doing. He thinks he's got the cat by the tail. And God's saying, he's not upright. He's not right. He's unrighteous. Rather, or the contrast is, that the righteous person shall live by faith. So what's being contrasted here is a soul that is puffed up in pride, thinking he knows better than God, versus a person who waits on what the Lord will say, who is patient, who listens and obeys when God says something, even when it seems like God isn't delivering right now. He's trusting God, even when it seems like God is slow on delivering what He's promised. You see, faith is the opposite of pride. Now often we juxtapose faith and works. Those two kind of go together in our mind as opposites, but that's not really how it is. Really what's opposite is faith and pride. Faith and pride. Faith doubts ourself and trusts God. Faith casts ourselves on the mercy of God, puts all our eggs in one basket, that is God's basket, Faith trusts God rather than self. Pride, on the other hand, trusts self. Pride says, I'm right. I know what's best. I know the way that it ought to be. And I'm going to even stand in judgment over what God has said. That's the opposite of faith. Now, if you want a little picture of this, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 1 and particularly look at the person of the Apostle Paul. Let's see how he demonstrates this kind of faith in his own personal life. It's right here in the introduction to this letter to the Romans. So let's walk through here and I'll show you how this demonstrates a faith in God that makes ourselves suspect and trust explicitly in what God has said and done. So first of all, we see in verse 1, Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. Now, you're not going to be somebody's slave if you think that you have it all together and you know what's best and your way is the only right way. But if you're a slave, you're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Master, 
I will do what you say. Paul, a voluntary, at least in one sense of the word, servant of Christ Jesus. He has surrendered to the Lord. Secondly, Paul set apart for the gospel of God. Paul isn't set apart for his own good news. He is set apart for the good news of God. It's God who has the good news, and the Apostle Paul knows that. It's not about the Apostle Paul. It's about God. Thirdly, Paul is committed to declaring this gospel of God. Why? So Paul can be famous? No, so God can be famous. For the sake of God's name, he says. This is why he is declaring this gospel of God. So that, or for the sake of his name, that is God's name among all the nations. And then we see that Paul is praying for the Christians in Rome, and he's praying in faith. He is trusting in God, not just for himself, but for these Christians whom he's writing to. He's saying, I'm trusting God that he will work in you. I'm praying to God to that end. And then Paul is waiting for God. Paul is waiting for God's will in regards to visiting them. You see, Paul thinks that it would be better if he would have visited them already. That's what he really wanted to do, but he realizes that that's not God's plan, and so he submits, he surrenders. He says, no, God, you're right, you're right. I will wait until the time is right in order to visit the church at Rome. And then Paul says that he is willing to do other gospel work wherever God calls him while he waits on God to make it clear he should go to Rome. So the Apostle Paul isn't like some of us who say, well, if I can't get what I want, then I'm not going to do anything. No, the Apostle Paul says, I don't understand why I have not been able to come see you, why it hasn't been God's will to come to see you yet, but I'm not going to wait on that. I'm going to be busy proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to all people wherever I am at and wherever God sends me. Again, this is demonstrating trust and faith in God, that God is right, and the Apostle Paul doesn't think of himself as having all the answers or knowing the best thing. And then, he, then the Apostle Paul says that he is under obligation. He's under obligation to people whom he would not naturally relate to. So he's trusting God, not just for the message, and not just for the, the place or the, the travel, but he's also trusting God for the audience. He's saying, God, I'm going to preach this gospel to barbarians, to wise, to foolish, to Greeks, to Gentiles, to Jews. Now, some of these people would not be people that the Apostle Paul would have naturally hung out with. Apostle Paul was a Jew. It wasn't natural for him to hang out with Greeks and Gentiles, much less barbarians. But he's saying, no, I, I trust God enough that I'm going to preach the message of the gospel to those people. I have an obligation to do so. Paul is eager to preach the message of the gospel, a message about God instead of a message about himself. And then the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of this message, even though it seems foolish. Now here comes one of the true tests of faith. Do you trust God enough to do what he says, to say what he says, even when, to your mind, to the minds of those around you, it seems foolish? Are you willing to be made a fool for the sake of God. 
This is, this is one of the tests of faith. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust people around you? Now, the Apostle Paul trusts God. He knows God. He trusts God, depends on God for everything. Here's a man who trusts God explicitly. His life is governed by what God wants, and he trusts God even when it doesn't seem like things are going the way he thinks they should. And so the Apostle Paul is a model of faith. His confidence is not in his own abilities, his own insights. His confidence is in God. And so by this definition, faith is a trusting confidence in God rather than ourselves. You, again, you can't have it both ways. You're either going to trust God or you're going to trust yourself. So faith is more than just trusting God. It's also a suspicion of your own abilities, suspicion of yourself. Now, there are other aspects, there are other definitions of faith. One of them we find here in Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What kind of faith is he talking about here? What, what, is, what is this? Well, faith can also be understood to be the content of our believing. The content of our believing, the message of our belief. Or we could say that faith in an objective sense is the truth about God that causes us to believe or trust in God. So previously we've talked about the faith that is this trusting confidence in God. Now we're talking about faith as the objective truth of, about God and of God that, that causes us to trust in Him. Faith, remember, faith doesn't save us. It is God who saves us through the gospel. Faith is our response to the good news of the gospel. And so the song we've already sang, trust and obey for there's no other way. And in this kind of faith, we live in trust, we live in confidence that God knows what he's doing, that when God speaks, he speaks truth. And that truth, in the big sense, is or can be described as faith. And so in Jude chapter 3, for example, we have a reference there that says, Jude verse 3, Beloved, I, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this, this faith, this body of truth about who God is and what God has done was delivered to the saints so that they might trust in God and place their confidence in Him. Faith is trusting in God rather than in ourselves. And the faith is the body of facts and truth that is the content for, or content or our basis for our trust in God. And that brings us to our second question. Upon what basis do we believe? What is this basis for faith? Well, the reason for faith, as I've already said, is that God is the only one who is right. Hebrews 11 is another passage that's often referred to when we talk about faith. There's a helpful definition. And notice that 
that this passage immediately follows Hebrews 10, 38, which quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. And now we read, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not some unreasonable thing. Faith does not require superstition or a suspension of rational thinking. Faith does not require a leap in the dark. No, faith has a basis. Faith is a sure thing. Faith brings assurance. Faith brings confidence. The reason for faith is because faith trusts a faithful God, a God who is right. Not only is God faithful, but he is faithful precisely because he is righteous. And we go back again to Romans chapter 1. The righteousness of God, it says, is revealed through the gospel from faith for faith. So why do we trust in God? We trust in God because he's right. His rightness, his rightness demonstrates his faithfulness. The righteousness of God, the rightness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. So why do we believe? Why is faith the only correct response to God? Because God is right. And God is the only one who is right. Who is righteous? Surely not you or I. God is righteous. God is the only ultimately righteous one. And so faith is a reasonable thing because God is right. God is more right than us. The obedience of faith that the Apostle Paul talks about here in the first part of chapter 1, the obedience of faith says, I'm going to suspend believing in myself and my perspective on things, and I'm going to go with God's version of reality. I'm going to go with God's version of right and wrong. I'm going to suspend the belief in myself that I know what's right and wrong. And we do that with full confidence and assurance because God is right. Now thirdly, what is the evidence of this righteousness, of this rightness? What is the evidence then of faith? And the answer is it's the gospel. Is this faith reasonable? It's a question a lot of people want to ask. What evidence is there that God is right? Where is the evidence of things not seen right now? Well, the evidence is here in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. God promised the gospel beforehand through the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament. And he asked the Old Testament saints to trust in it, even though it hadn't been delivered yet. And the, the whole chapter, of Hebrews chapter 11, is a recounting of these Old Testament saints who trusted by faith in God, even though he hadn't delivered all the promise yet. But he did deliver. And the promise was fulfilled exactly like he said it would be. God orchestrated events so that hundreds and hundreds of years 
after it was predicted, it happened just like he said it would. The gospel, that is. The good news of Jesus Christ come to earth, dying for us, being raised again on the third day. This is evidence. This is the, the reasonable evidence for faith. Furthermore, Paul has seen that the truth of the gospel brings forth fruit in people's lives. He sees this demonstrated in the life of the saints at Rome. He says, your faith is well known around the world. People take note of this. And this once again proves that God is right. Because God says, if you trust in me, if you believe in me, if you have faith in me, you'll be righteous. Now the test for that would be, when we see people trusting by faith in God, are they righteous? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then God is right. And so the gospel proves that God is right. The gospel delivers on the promises that God made beforehand and proves that God is right. God is right about ourselves. He is right about we being sinful. He is right that, that he must deliver the sacrifice for our sins. He is right when he says that if we trust and believe in him, we will have eternal life. We will live in righteousness. The gospel is the evidence of faith. How is the gospel related to this? The gospel says that God has done it all and that he offers pardon and life freely to anyone who would surrender himself and trust in God. And then the gospel proves this in people's lives. It proves this by changing people. This is the obedience of faith. This faith, this believing has a different quality than merely believing the facts about who God is and what God has done. You see, in the book of James, it's told us that the devils also believe and tremble. The devils know the facts. They know the facts better than you and me. But they don't have faith. And there's the difference. There is the mark. There is the distinguishing feature between righteousness and unrighteousness. The devils believe, but they aren't saved. Salvation comes when we believe and obey. When we trust and obey. When we surrender our will and our pride and our demands to be right, and we trust that God is right, that God is faithful, that God is true. Jesus talked about this using language, using terms like repent and believe. To repent means to change your mind about something. To change your mind in this context about yourself and about God. To go from thinking that you're number one, that you've got it right, to thinking that God is the right one. This is the good news or the gospel of God that the apostle refers to here. That God has provided the righteousness that he himself requires. He has provided this for us precisely because we could not. He has provided this for us in the person and work of His only Son, Jesus Christ. So that anyone who trusts in Him will be righteous. No one is righteous in themselves or because of what they themselves do. And we can turn back to Romans chapter 3 and we can see this reiterated very clearly. None is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is our condition apart from God. Now notice also God's participation in the gospel. You see, God doesn't just stand off at a distance and demand or require adherence to some arbitrary standard. No, God enters our world. God enters our world, God enters our lives, and He Himself provides not only the requirements and the standard, but also the means by which we can meet that requirement. The demonstration of God's mercy and God's grace in the sending of His own Son to earth to suffer and die, the righteous for the unrighteous, this is the best evidence we have for faith. God is so right and so beautiful and so good that He didn't spare even His own Son in the pursuit of that righteousness and that holiness, but He gave Him up for us all that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel brings true life. Only those who trust in God via faith will live a righteous life. Romans 14.25 says, All that is not of faith is sin. That's the choice. It's either righteousness or unrighteousness. And the only way for righteousness is by faith. So no matter what we do, it will not be righteous unless it is done in faith. Unless it is done in this trusting confidence in God and this surrender of ourselves. And this is why the Apostle Paul says he is obligated to everyone. Everyone needs this good news because everyone is subject to the same bad news. There is no one who is, who is exempt. There is no other solution. This is it. This is the only way. The only way to be righteous and not to be unrighteous and under the wrath of God. This is why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Even though it seems foolish to some, he is convinced that God is right. The gospel, he says, is the power or dynamic of God. It is the only way that anyone will be saved, and it is all of God. So we must throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We must call out to Him for mercy and grace. There is no hope anywhere else. And the reason this gospel is the power of God for salvation is because it says in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the rightness or righteousness of God is revealed. This proves that God is right. It shows that He is the only one who is ultimately right or righteous. And this righteousness, this rightness of God has been demonstrated in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith. And so we see in Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets, we see that their faith did not disappoint. It was not in vain, even though they weren't recipients of what was promised. And so their faith serves our faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the way it has always been. This is the way it always will be. There is no other way but to trust and obey. 
So what is the evidence or proof of faith? It is the gospel, where God makes good on his promises and proves that he is right. So in conclusion, let me go back to our first question. Are you righteous? Remember, this is a yes or no question. And if you say that you are righteous, upon what basis do you make that declaration? Upon what basis do you declare that you are righteous? The answer comes down to who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? Are you willing to distrust yourself and trust completely God? Are you willing to humble yourself and do everything in your power to exalt God? Now that's easy, relatively speaking, that's easy to decide right here, right now. It's easy to say, yep, yep, God's right, God's right, I'll trust him, I will exalt him, I will not exalt myself, it's easy right now, but it gets hard every day. When you're faced with decisions, even little decisions, when you're faced with decisions about how you're going to respond when someone hurts you, how you're going to respond when you're tempted to sin? Are you going to say, God doesn't really know what he's doing? He doesn't really know what's right for me and what's best for me, and so I'm going to take this in hand and do it, even though I know he says not to? That's not faith. That's unrighteousness. Are you going to exhaust yourself? Are you going to care about how you look and how you appear to those around you? For what? You care more about how you look than how God looks? Are you going to feel sorry for yourself because you didn't get what you wanted? Or are you going to trust that God knows what's right? And God knows what's best. And He will ultimately provide. One way to test, one way to test our faith is by asking and answering another question. By what standard will you live? What is the standard by which you will evaluate your life and your behavior and your thinking is it going to be according to what God says in His Word? Is that the standard? About what's right and what's not? Or is the standard something else? One of the ways this plays out in our lives is by the risks we're willing to take. Are you willing to do whatever God asks you to do even when you don't feel capable of doing it? If God has called you through His Word to obedience, and you say, God, I, I can't do this, what are you saying? You're saying, God, you're not right. That's not faith. Do you have to have everything figured out 
before you're willing to act in obedience? Do you have to see the end result and make sure that it's proper before you're willing to embark on the journey of faith? That's not faith. Are you willing to stand for the truth that God has revealed even when it might cost you everything? Or are you going to wait and see what other people have to say? Whose version of truth are you going to go with? Yours? Your friends? Your neighbors? Or God's? Now maybe you're here today and you realize that you're not righteous that you're not living in faith, that you have been living with yourself at the center rather than God, that you have been trusting in yourself more than you've been trusting in God, what should you do? Well, the call of Jesus and the call of the apostles and my call to you this morning is to repent, to change your mind about yourself and about God. And then believe in Jesus. Believe and trust that what Jesus did at the cross and in the resurrection is sufficient for your salvation. And then follow him by faith. Repent, believe, follow. Repent, believe, follow. Repent, believe, follow. That is the pattern of the righteous and this doesn't just happen one time. It doesn't just happen one day. It is a life. Repent, believe, follow. Repent, believe, follow. That's what it means to live by faith. You cannot repent, you cannot believe, and you certainly cannot follow unless you're willing to trust God explicitly. This requires faith, the kind of faith that only God can give in the gospel. So if you're going to be righteous, then you will live by faith in God and not faith in yourself. There is no other way but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we think about you and ourselves. And we realize that you are right. We are not. And we acknowledge that we are sinful and in need of your righteousness, for we cannot produce it on our own. So help us to trust you explicitly. Help us to repent, to change our thinking about ourselves and about you. And help us then to believe and trust in full confidence and surrender. And then help us to follow all in faith. And may you guide each one here in this congregation this morning. May you empower them to live a life that is righteous because it's lived by faith. Father, help us to see the difference, to see the subtle ways in which our self rises up and wants to be right. Help us to be able to see this in ourselves and to call out to you for mercy and grace. Guide us as we relate to each other, as we help each other to see these things. Give us love and hearts of compassion. But most of all, make us 
strong so that we can believe and trust in you no matter what. Even when the world around us thinks we're foolish. For all of this, we trust in you, we depend on you, and all of this for the honor and glory of your name. And for the fame of the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.